Chapter 6 of From North Carolina to Southern California Without a Ticket, and How I Did It. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From North Carolina to Southern California Without a Ticket, and How I Did It, by John Peel. Chapter 6 The train had now entered a country that is simply indescribable for its bleak barrenness. On every hand, as far as I could see, was nothing but barren sand-hills, broken here and there by high mountain ridges. In some places we would go forty or fifty miles without seeing a sign of human habitation, then suddenly we would come upon a small collection of adobe huts, that is, huts built of sun-dried mud-bricks. These little houses have a flat roof, and some of them are no taller than a man's head. They are occupied by Mexicans and Indians. A big rain would destroy all these dwellings, but rain is almost as scarce in this desolate, sun-baked region as snow is in the torrid zone. When it does rain there, and a man's clothes are wet, it takes but ten minutes for the air to dry him off again. From where I was sitting in the door of the coke car, thousands upon thousands of jack-rabbits, cottontails, and prairie dogs could be seen dodging in and out among the rocks and cactus trees. Once, just before dark came on, a solitary cowboy, wearing high boots and a big sombrero, mounted on a spirited young pony, dashed across the tracks ahead of the train and disappeared behind the low mountain ridges toward the sunset, and such a grand, beautiful sunset that was, the sun slowly sinking behind the distant mountain peaks, and the whole heavens lit up with a perfect flood of golden beauty, was a scene, though I live to be a hundred years old, I shall never forget. Nowhere else in all the world, I believe, are the sunsets so gloriously beautiful as in Arizona or New Mexico. Lost in spellbound admiration and silent reflection, I sat in the car door until long after dark. The night air at home had always given me the asthma, but there was no asthma feeling about me now. Instead, I felt that it would be an impossibility to wheeze. I inhaled great draughts of the dry, pure air, which seemed to penetrate to my very toes, and open every air cell in my body. Surely for those whose lungs are affected this is God's country, I thought. Then and there I registered a solemn vow that when my parents were no more, I should return to this country and pass the remainder of my days. All of this part of New Mexico is devoted to sheep-raising. White men are in demand as sheep-herders, and are usually paid thirty dollars per month and board. That night I slept in the coke car, and at sun-up next morning we reached the first large town in all the two-hundred-mile stretch from Dalhart, Santa Rosa, a town of seven hundred population. No one discovered the poor, thirsty hobo in the coke car. In this country three hours is a long time for a man to do without water. Inside of an hour the train had changed crews, another engine had been coupled on, and the long, 170-mile ride across the dreary waste to Alamogordo, the next division point, was begun. During this long ride there was no change of scenery. I never went to the door without seeing thousands of jack-rabbits and an occasional coyote. Once in a while a large tarantula, spider, as large as a man's hand, could be seen scampering among the rocks for shelter. Extreme thirst is caused by the alkali dust which floats in the air. Before the day was over my lips had become a fiery red and cracked open, and my tongue had swollen nearly twice its normal size. Many a poor hobo has been put down in this country by a heartless brakeman, and left to die on the desert of thirst, but as yet no one on the train had seen me. 
Once, as darkness was closing down, I heard a brakeman coming and quickly crawled into the back end of the car where it was very dark. Slabs had been nailed across the open door within two feet of the top to prevent the cope from rolling out. The brakeman climbed upon these slabs, and taking up a piece of coke, threw it into the dark end of the car, where I was hiding, with considerable force. Though he could not see me, his aim was true, and the coke struck me a glancing blow upon the cheek, cutting a long gash and starting the blood. The pain was intense, and it was all I could do to keep from crying out, but the brakeman, unconscious of my hurt, hurled a piece of coke into the other end of the car, and upon hearing no one, sprang from the car door, and soon his footsteps could be heard going to some other part of the train. Late that night we reached Alamogordo. While here I wrote home to my folks. Alamogordo is four thousand feet above the sea level, and has one of the finest natural parks in the United States. The town is also noted for the luscious fruit raised by the Mexican ranchers nearby. My night's lodging was on a large pile of telegraph poles piled near the railroad. No dew falls in that country, and a good many of the people who live there would rather sleep on the ground during the summer months than on a good feather bed. A man can sleep on the ground there nine months in the year without taking a cold. I left Alamogordo the next day on a passenger train as a coal passenger, that is. I had to help the fireman shovel coal for my fare to El Paso. About half of this trip lay in the foothills of the mountains, and then we reached the mountains proper. Gradually the train rose foot by foot, the train was going very slowly now, until we had attained a height of over five thousand feet above the level of the track. The journey was now through the clouds, and in some places the fog was so thick I could not see the cars that were following behind us, but in a few moments the spiral winding tracks would carry us on the other side of the mountains, where the sun was shining brightly, and I could see far down the beautiful valleys to some distant mountain peak over seventy-five miles away. It was the first time I had ever seen the mountains, and enraptured with their beauty, I forgot to throw coal down for the firemen. The engineer, noticing my abstraction, called, "'Hey, come down here a minute!' I crawled into the cab. "'Where are you from?' he asked, good-naturedly. "'I'm from North Carolina, working my way to Tucson.' "'I thought you were from the east,' he said. "'How far do you think it is to that mountain peak over there?' "'It looks to be about five miles,' I answered. "'That's where this clear air fools you. Why, that peak is over forty miles away!' he laughed. The rest of the trip I was treated exceptionally good. Both the fireman and engineer seemed to take a delight in pointing out to me things of interest. Presently a very high mountain caught my eye. "'That's Mount Shasta,' said the fireman. "'It's over two miles high, and snow lies up there about nine months in the year. There's a railroad built up there now,' he continued, "'and it's an ideal summer resort.' About eight or nine p.m. we reached El Paso, Texas. At one time, years ago, El Paso was one of the roughest border towns in the West, but the modern El Paso is altogether a different town. The population now numbers over 50,000, of which 15 or 20 percent are Mexicans. Just across the Rio Grande River is the Mexican city Ciudad Juarez. I spent nearly a day in this quaint-looking city. In the center of the town is a large park, seated on one of the beautiful rustic benches placed close together along the shaded avenues of the park you are quite free from the hot scorching sun beating down overhead just above your head a large framework extending over the entire park has been constructed 
and upon it a thick growth of vines and beautiful flowers are entwined in endless profusion. Wherever I spent a small American coin, I was sure to receive nearly a handful of Mexican coins in change. A toll bridge spans the river and connects the two cities. An American collects the toll on the El Paso side and a Mexican on the Juarez side. It cost me two cents to cross each way. While in El Paso, I heard a great deal of talk about the high wages paid laborers in Bisbee, Arizona, and as it was only a few miles out of my way going to Tucson, I decided to stop over there for a few days. I shoveled coal on an El Paso and southwestern freight train from El Paso to Douglas, a distance of two hundred miles. Douglas, Arizona, is a small place of about two thousand population, and is twenty-seven miles from Bisbee. When we reached Douglas, the engineer and the fireman invited me to take dinner with them. The engineer offered to get me a place in the large railroad shops located there as apprentice boy at two fifty per day, but I told him I would go to Bisbee and try that town for a job first. In this country, a man willing to work can always find dozens of jobs waiting for him. Nearly everything is white labor, and it's very seldom you are offered less than three fifty to four fifty per day for eight hours' work. The largest smelter plant in the world is located at Douglas. It's the old plant removed from Bisbee. The ore train, heaviest tonnage train in the world, hauls the crude ore from the mines in Bisbee to the Douglas smelters. I stayed over one night in Douglas, and the next morning at daylight caught the ore train with its long line of empty iron-bound cars bound for Bisbee. At Osborne Junction a miner got into the car I was in. He was also going to Bisbee. We left the cars on a side-track at Don Luis, and started out to walk the remaining two miles to Bisbee, the greatest mining camp on earth. My first impression of Bisbee was certainly not a very favorable one. The town is surrounded by high mountain ranges, making a sewerage system next to impossible. The waste matter of Bisbee is hauled away in wooden boxes with teams. On account of this poor sewerage, Bisbee suffers every summer with an epidemic of typhoid fever and smallpox. There is always the presence of a fearful stench upon the streets. All of the streets are very narrow, winding, and short. Most of the dwelling-houses are built one above the other, up the mountain-sides, and are reached by narrow, winding paths. Main Street and Brewery Gulch are the two principal business streets. On either of these streets, day or night, one always finds a large crowd of miners and gamblers, speaking of gambling. Bisbee is a typical western town in this respect. There are over twenty public gambling halls there. Every saloon has its gambling hall, and in the rear a band of musicians. The doors are thrown wide open, and the window shades are never drawn. Strolling into one of these brightly lighted dens of iniquity, you'll find every known gambling device under the sun. Dice-throwing, twenty-one, faro, roulette, poker, they are all there, and many others. The Indian, Chinaman, Mexican, and American all play at the same table and unless you are a good poker player, you had better stay out of the game. In these games the ante is seldom less than a dollar. The people in the far west talk but little while the game is going on. There is no wrangling or misunderstanding. The cards are dealt quickly and deftly, and without a word the betting begins. Sometimes the pot swells to a thousand dollars or more, but even then the same quiet among the players prevails. The winner hardly smiles as he pockets his money, and the loser, if he goes broke, quietly gives up his seat, and some other gentleman takes a hand. 
on the tenth and twelfth of every month the mines around bisbee pay out to the employees the sum of seventy thousand dollars so it is no wonder the gambling halls do a good business there are no one-cent pieces used in bisbee not even in the post office nothing less than five cents bartenders in bisbee receive six dollars for an eight-hour shift serving drinks there are no colored people in bisbee board and room can be obtained for thirty dollars per month and up clothing cost but little more than in the east end of chapter six